This is an audio presentation of God First Church, Cheltenham, England. A community of Jesus followers, worshipping God first, proclaiming God first, and together living God first lives. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk. You don't always want what you really need. We want things if this, if only, if this, if this. But that isn't always what we need. If you're a parent, you know that. My kids want this. I want this. No, but you need this. So that's what we're going to look about this morning. Uh, we're going to read uh, from John's Gospel. And I put my, I've got a packet of seeds. So I, I must... Uh, that will, they will turn up later. Uh, okay, so John's Gospel. Um, I've got lots of slides. Apologize if you don't like slides. Just don't look at the slides. Just look at me. But if slides help you, uh, you'll say thank you afterwards. Okay, so John 12, uh, verse 12. The next day. So I'll come back to why John mentions the next day because he wants us to know where it is in the month uh, of Passover. In the next day, the great, uh, the great crowd that had come for the Passover festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the son of David, the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it's written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. That's another phrase for Jerusalem. Your, your, see, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that all these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Verse 17. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he'd performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees sent to one another, almost wringing their hands, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now, there were some Greeks uh, among those who went up to worship at the festival, and they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, uh, with a request, Sir, they said, we would see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew, Andrew and Philip that in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it. Anyone who loves less or hates, says some translations, loves less their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it's for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Father, we just pray as we get this big picture of Jesus coming into Jerusalem and this small-scale discussion of the disciples and a small crowd. Lord, I pray that you'd realign our understanding, that you would allow 
the Holy Spirit to change our perception of, of what it is to follow you in a fresh way. Lord, I pray as we come to this story that's perhaps familiar to many, that you'd speak it afresh to us in Jesus' name. So the first thing we just need to say is Jesus is drawing big crowds. Uh, John says, the next day, the great crowd. Now, I don't know how, what, what bigger crowd is, what constitutes a great crowd. Some people said that uh, in the Passover, there'd be up to two million people would be in Jerusalem. I think that's probably an, uh, an exaggeration. But, uh, the, but some said there would be tens of thousands. Maybe it's a, we're talking about football crowd. Not Barnet, Spurs, you know, more Arsenal. Football crowd, sorry, size, Leeds United. Football crowd, size. We're talking, you know, 30,000, 40,000 people. We're talking a lot of people. And I know when you, when you kind of see the, the movies, the reason why they haven't got 30,000 people is they can't afford to pay the extras. You know, there's a lot of people. Why is there a lot of people? Um, that, that there's a lot of people because Jesus has done something amazing just a few uh, days before, or probably a week before. His best friend had died, and his sister Lazarus and, his, and Lazarus's sisters Martha and Mary had said to Jesus, "Come on, you need to come." Jesus came late. You might know the story. Lazarus dies. Jesus raises him from the dead, and like there's just this kind of incredible rise of wow. Who's got power over death? But at the same time, the religious leaders were like, you know, what is in their heads? At the same time, they're saying, we've got to kill him. So that happened. So suddenly Jesus is big, big news. He's big news. And so the, the crowds that, had, uh, that started to follow him were getting growing greater and greater and greater. The previous day, he'd been in the, the house of Martha and Mary, and Mary had uh, anointed him uh, with a, 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 a perfume. And, uh, and Jesus said, this is for my burial. He knew the time was coming. So he sets himself to go into Jerusalem. Now, the first thing is the crowd. The crowd got something right. The crowd got something right. The crowd knew they need saving. The crowd knew they need saving. Now, I, you, might not, you know, might put it in that phrase, but we all need saving. You all want something to happen. You all might say, if only this were to happen, like I said in my introduction, if only this were to happen, I need this, I need, I need salvation from this. We all get to the point, maybe you don't, because obviously in London people like to make it, get it done themselves, but you get to the point where you think, I cannot do this anymore. I need some outside intervention, I'm, yeah? You get to this point, I need saving. Something greater, someone greater needs to intervene for me. I mean, you look, in, you look across the nations, let's not do a political journey, but you look across the nations and think, we need something greater than what we can do. You look at Ukraine, you know, you look at the Muslim world, you look at the destruction in Syria and you think, you feel helpless, don't you? And you think, we need someone great. The crowd got it right. They needed saving. They say these words, Hosanna. Hosanna means save us. Lord, save us. They pray, Lord, save us. They also got it right about who Jesus was. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're not saying he's the second person of the Trinity at that point, but they're saying, wow, this is God's one who's coming. Is he the Messiah? Yes, he's the Messiah. Blessed is the son of David. That's a sign. That's a kind of label for the Messiah. This is the king. They're saying this in incredible expectation. We need saving. We need saving. They're quoting Psalm 118 which is a royal psalm that, 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 that would, uh, they'd read it at Passover. In fact, 
Psalm 118 was read when they drank the cup at Passover. They would read the long psalm. I haven't got time to preach the whole psalm. I'm a long preacher, so I need to be careful. Okay, so it's, it, they, this is what it says. It says, Hosanna, and then it's almost like the psalmist gives a, a, the, a what does that mean? Lord, save us. So it's Hosanna, Hosanna. And then interesting, Lord, grant us success. We'll come back to that. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The Lord is God and he's made his light shine on us. And then it says, with bows in hand, join us in the festival procession up to the horns of the temple altar. There's a sense where the coming king would be greeted with bows, with palm branches. It's in the psalm. So that's kind of partly what they're doing. They're saying, hey, this is the, the coming king, the one who's come to save us. And they got that right. And they had a sense, maybe, maybe this one, maybe this man who's raised the dead, he's the answer. Maybe he's the answer. And you've got 10,000 people. He's almost got a crowd of people coming with him across from Bethany, across the valley. We're going there in a few weeks, Duncan and I and Jill and my wife. We're going to Jerusalem, so don't feel too jealous. <laughs> we're going and across the valley and they're entering through the sheep gate and, and, and coming in. And then a whole crowd come out and meet them. And they're thinking, this is the one who's going to change their situation. This is the one. They got it right. Who needs saving here? Yes, we do. But they were unaware of what they really needed saving from. They were unaware of their true need. What they thought is they wanted a revolution. They wanted a revolution. I'm from the north of England. People accuse me often of being too left in my politics. I'm, I am. <laughs> it's bred into me from the working class roots that I got. Uh, uh, <laughs> I don't, you know, oh, I used to be with people and they'd just think, oh, we just need a revolution. I've never known a revolution that's gone, somebody's walked out even. I've just mentioned that. <laughs> Flip me. Revolutions don't change things. Ah, flip. You know, you look at the Russian Revolution. What a mess. You look at... But these people wanted a revolution and they kind of harked back to a bit of their history. So there's a, a picture of a guy on a coin called Judas Maccabeus. On the back of that coin, I, don't, I couldn't find a picture of it, on the back of that coin from 150 BC was a palm branch. Hold your horses. So what happened is the Judas Maccabees, he's like a revolutionary leader. The, the Greeks, who were the descendants of Alexander the Great, came and took over Jerusalem. And what they did is they desecrated the temple. And if you know anything about Jewish food, they killed pigs on the altar and made the high priest eat the pigs. Oh, I mean, I quite like a bit of pork, but not good for Jewish people. They, they did this, and so basically they desecrated the altar, and they built, a, they built a fortress there. And what had happened is Judas Maccabees mans up, and he kind of gets these forces, and he drives them out. He comes into Jerusalem with his forces. He drives them out. He goes into the temple and cleanses the temple of all the Greeks. And as the Judas Maccabee comes into the Jerusalem, guess what they wave? Palm branches. So it's almost like this is a symbol. This is a revolutionary symbol. I don't know if anyone's seen the Hunger Games. It's getting a bit old, this illustration. But, but they, used to, they did this, didn't they? Basically, it was this kind of revolution. And they did this whistle. Does anyone, can anyone do the whistle? Not bad, Duncan. <laughs> so basically, they're saying, we're rebelling against the capital. And palm branches were this equivalent. They look innocuous. You know, you do it at Sunday school. All the kids make these little palm branches. Everyone thinks it's great. It's like these little flags that you worship in charismatic worship. And they made these palm branches. But actually, it's this revolutionary symbol saying, we're for the revolution. 
We're for the revolution. Who's in, it's not the Greeks in there now, it's the Romans in there. And what have they done? They've taken over the fortress at the side of the temple and they, and they think, let's kick these Gentiles out. Up the revolution. <laughs> now, it's interesting. We won't go here because we haven't got time. But if you, know, if you need read Matthew, Mark and Luke, what does Jesus do straight after going into Jerusalem? Think. He cleanses the temple. But what does he do? He doesn't drive out the Gentiles, does he? He drives out the traders in the Gentiles' court and says, this place should be a place for all nations to pray. Tilt. That's just a free bit. It's not part of my sermon. Okay, so, so what happened is, that, so they're thinking, what a revolution. And Jesus rides in on a donkey. I don't know when you see a donkey. We think, ah, that he must, a real ruler would have come in on a chariot, would have come in with a great charger. But actually, they would have known that kings of Israel rode in on donkeys. Kings of Israel rode, they're not thinking, this is a humble king. They're thinking, this is a king. Our king comes on donkeys. Andrew Wilson from New Frontiers, who wrote a book called God of All Things, which I read in the summer, says this. Sometimes times in our eagerness to show the difference between Jesus and all other kings... We imply he's also different, so different that people wouldn't have realized he was a king at all. Far from it. Israel's kings rode donkeys, and everyone who read their scriptures would know that. So they're seeing, here's a king coming, and he's going to come and he's going to come and bring a revolution. Great, let's get rid of those foreigners, let's get everybody out, let's do our own thing in the temple. Happy days. That, that's all we need. We need a revolution. They got that wrong. Because they couldn't see the Jesus they needed. They wanted Jesus and they wanted his power, but they couldn't see the Jesus they really needed. They missed the clues that were there in the story to say the Jesus they really needed. Now, just pause. We'll come back to this thought. I might even repeat it. What do you want Jesus for? What do you want Jesus to do for you? What do you want Jesus to do for you? I mean, I've prayed about all sorts of stuff. God, get my kids into university. God, help me when I can't pay my bills. God, help me when my, my family are unwell. God, help me do this. God, help me do that. And, and I've come to God for that. I've come, God, God, meet my needs. And I'm not saying that God shouldn't meet my needs or God doesn't, doesn't care about my needs, but it's almost like I've had very much in my head, grant us success. In that Psalm 118, it says, Lord, save us, grant us success. And we define what we want from Jesus. We think, this is what I want. I want this, I want this, I want this. You can name the things. We could go around and say, what do you want from Jesus? And none of those things are necessarily wrong. But the bottom line is, we sometimes don't uh, ask Jesus for what we truly need. So we're talking last night, and, and we're talking about a friend of mine, and I'm probably moaning a little bit about him, not Duncan. And Duncan says, oh, it's so easy, isn't it, to moan about other people? What's wrong in our hearts? And I'm thinking, oh, dear, don't do this. We're supposed to have in Chinese food. And... You know, what I really need is Jesus to do some work in my heart. But I think I need a church building for my church or more money for my church or my middle son to get a job. Or blah, blah, blah. I've got all these other things. Whereas actually I don't sometimes, we don't see the Jesus we truly need. And, so, and actually John, he says, we didn't get it. We didn't get it at the time. Uh, verse 16 says, at first, this is very honest of John, at first his disciples did not understand all this. You're thinking the disciples are like walking into Jerusalem and saying, we know he's going to go die now. 
We know what's happening. We know what this donkey means. We know what this means. They, they, they said they didn't get it. So the crowd never got it. And the disciples never got it. And they didn't get it. He says they didn't get it until they didn't realize these things. Only after Jesus has been glorified did they realize these things. So they didn't. Oh, I love somebody who comes and sits on the front row. It's keen. All you back row people, notice. <laughs> they didn't see when he comes in on a donkey. They didn't see what we see because we know the story. We didn't see that he came in humility and peace. They think he's coming to bring war to kill the Romans, but he's coming to bring peace. Verse 10. Uh, it comes lowly. Have you read that book, Gentle and Lowly? There's a great book about what Jesus is like, how Jesus gets so close to people that are most needy and most vulnerable. He comes lowly. He's not up there unaccessible. He comes lowly, but that's another. And then he says, I've come to wait to take the chariots of Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem and the battle bow will be broken. I haven't come to bring war. I've come to bring peace. Because what you don't need is just another ruler, just another leader, not just another change of government, just another change of situation. What you need is something more fundamental. And they never picked it up. Tim Keller says this, In Jesus we find a king with infinite majesty. Yeah, we like that, but complete humility. A king who's perfect in justice. No, I don't really want that. Boundless in grace. Yes, please. A king who's absolutely sovereign. No, please don't tell me what to do, Jesus. Utterly submitted to his heavenly father. The all-sufficient king, please help me. The one with divine authority in himself who doesn't use it to his own advantage. We kind of struggle with Jesus because he's like, what is he like? What is he like? I remember when I was a kid, uh, Nelson Mandela. Who's heard of Nelson Mandela? Tell me what, what you think of Nelson Mandela, sir. What, give me his description of him in one word. Good, bad? A great man. When I was a kid, the prime minister at the time, I'm not going to mention it because it sounds like a bit of politics, said he's a terrorist. Putin. We don't even need to say what we think about him. Some people in Russia are going to think he's a great guy. We often see what we want to see. Well, with Jesus, we, sometimes these, they saw the power, give us the power, but they lack the humility. We love the Jesus that says, I forgive you everything. You sin, I forgive you. Don't worry, it's all fine. But we don't want a Jesus that says, right, I want you to, to follow me. And to daily be in my service. I don't want you to, you'd say, oh, Jesus, I want you to give me success and prosperity. But I don't want to give my money. So we have the Jesus that we want. But they miss that clue. They miss that he came humbly and in peace. They miss this other clue. On the next day was the, the day before Passover. The day before Passover. John wants us to know it's the day before Passover. Sorry, the fifth day before Passover. Passover happens on Thursday night, Friday morning. This is the Sunday. And he wants to say this is the fifth day before Passover because in, in the start of the chapter he says it's the sixth day before Passover. And then he says now it's the next day. Why are you telling me this? Because what happened on the fifth day was called Lamb Selection Day. Lamb Selection Day. So what would happen is through this gate, this sheep gate, where Jesus was coming as well with all these crowds, there'd be hundreds of thousands of lambs coming in. They'd be bringing the lambs in, bringing them into the temple to, to, to be selected. Jesus, they obviously were selling them and Jesus kicked it out, but that's the other Gospels. They're so, selecting a lamb. It was lamb selection day. So coming through the sheep gate is this one humble riding on a donkey and he's coming through with all the sheep because it's lamb selection day. Who's the lamb that's been selected? 
Jesus. And they didn't see it. Because all these lambs are probably thinking, this is getting away in the way of our revolution. All these, and they, no, Jesus is the lamb that's selected. It says, tell the whole community of Israel on the 10th day, that's the same as the one that Jesus sent to Jerusalem. On the 10th day, each man should take a, a lamb for his family uh, and one for each household. Take them into your home. Think about that. Some when I put the picture of the lamb up, some went, ooh. We had a friend of ours called Tom. He's one of my, one of my leaders. And his, his kids had a little lamb. And they were keeping it in their garden and, and stroking it and feeding it and everything. And I'm thinking, I know what's going to happen to this lamb. I'm thinking, don't let your kids get too attached to this lamb. And then, like, when well, they came home from school one day and they're like, where's the lamb? Oh, he's gone on holiday. <laughs> Imagine that. Bring the lamb in. Why did they bring the lamb in? They brought the lamb in to identify with it. Jesus is one like ours. He's humble and he identifies with us. And then they, on the, on the Thursday night, Friday morning, slay the lamb. You know the story? If you know the story, the, the, that's the story of what happened in Egypt. They're in slavery in Egypt. How are they going to get out of Egypt? They got out of Egypt by slaying a lamb, putting the blood on the doorposts so that the death would not get in the house. The death would pass over. That's what we need saving from. The great enemy is Satan, sin and death. It's not like we need a revolution. I need a pay rise. Paul says in Corinthians, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. So there's this struggle. You need to give me warning when, as time starts to go, Duncan. Uh, as... Um, there's this struggle. Which Jesus have we got here? Which Jesus have we got? And it's interesting. Some Greeks come to him and say, we would see Jesus. Uh, just as a little a throwaway, if you preach in a church, I am preaching in a church of Scotland, but a friend of mine told me, if you preach in a church of Scotland church, on the pulpit, they don't have this trendy like high tech thing, but on the pulpit, it says, we would see Jesus. It's basically telling the preacher that people need to see Jesus. You need to really, really know who Jesus is. I thought it was kind of quite nice. So the Pharisees, the Pharisees, verse 90 says, so the Pharisees looked at one another, this massive crowd following Jesus. See, this is getting us nowhere. They want to kill him. See, this is getting away nowhere. Look, the whole world, actually it says the whole cosmos, that word cosmos, the whole cosmos, everything's coming after him. I love that. They speak what they don't know, do they? They're like, oh dear, Jesus is just a nightmare. How are we going to kill him? The whole world's gone after him because the whole world is going to be his, isn't it? It says, now there were some Greeks. Why does, why does John put some Greeks in there? Because the Greeks were part of the revolution, weren't they? The ones they wanted to kick out. And what happens is, Jesus, um, in, in, 80, in 51 BC, the Greek, it was Greeks. The Greeks among them went up to worship at the festival. Then came to Philip, who's got a Greek name, who's from Bethsaida in Galilee. So John says, no, he's not Greek though. Uh, with a request, sir, we would see Jesus. It's a great prayer. Jesus, I need to see you. We want to see you, see you more clearly, love you more dearly. We want to see him. We don't want a Jesus in our own image, a Jesus after our own, a Jesus who do our stuff, a little pocket Jesus, as I once heard preached to. We pop out when we need to, 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 to somebody to, oh God, would you do this? Oh God, would you do that? Oh God, would you do that? And then we pop it back in the pocket and carry on going like, no, we need to see Jesus in all of who he is. And it's interesting that Jesus doesn't say, actually, that's a great question. Come in, Greeks, and I'll take you on the Alpha course. 
We'll have a Greek-speaking one as well as a Persian. You're going to come on the Alpha course. He doesn't say that, but he knows that that's a trigger for something huge. And we get towards the end now. The cross reveals the Jesus we need. They say, we want to see Jesus. The, The Greeks come and say, we want to see Jesus. And Jesus says, verse 23... Now the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then in verse 27 and 28, it says, Now my soul is troubled. That's almost a hint of of Gethsemane, but John doesn't mention Gethsemane. Father, save me from this hour. What shall I say? No, it's for this very, very reason I come. Father, glorify your name. So we've got these two verses with glorify and glorify. There's like two bookends, and in the middle, there's the punch. That's how the Greeks wrote it. Uh, sorry, other Jews wrote, Hebrews wrote the scripture. Something there, something there, and it folds in, and in the middle is the punch. So what's the edges? It's about glory. Now the hour has come for, your son to, for the Son of Man to be glorified. Father, glorify your name. Let me just help you with that glory. Glory speaks of weight, something really heavy. So if you think about gold, gold, we feel like, well, that's valuable, isn't it? It's really heavy. If you had a gold bar, that's it, give him a nudge. <laughs> if you had a gold bar, you'd think, whoa, this is heavy. I don't know if you know the story when, that you get taught in Sunday school where there's handwrites on the wall. Does anyone know that story? There's a, in Babylon, the handwrites on the wall, the most powerful man in the world, the king of, king of Babylon, he writes on the wall, and, and the, the, he writes on the wall and says, you've been weighed in the scales and found wanting or light. It says in Isaiah 40, it says, all the nations are like fine dust on the scales. All human weight and glory isn't very much. But this man is very, it's full of glory. So glory speaks of weight. So to glorify something is to, to, say, to praise its true worth. So Jesus is saying, this moment of my crucifixion is going to be, now, Father, glorify your name. It was great. We sang song after song after song, didn't we, about that moment? Because it shows us what the Father, it shows us what the God is really like. It shows us the Jesus we really need. And glorified means some things, the worth of something is going to be revealed. So it's interesting. The, the, the Greeks come and say, we would see Jesus. And Jesus says, you are going to see. You are going to see what I'm really like. You are going to see what really matters. And interestingly, the, 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 um, he says this, very truly, this is the middle bit, very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now, we, uh, at Mother's Day, we gave out sunflower packets, because sunflowers about Ukraine. We gave out sunflower packets to our mothers. But I had a spare packet. You think about a seed. Can you see that seed? Whoops. Can you see that seed? You can say yes. Thank you. Jesus is saying that unless a seed, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, falls into the ground and dies, it remains a single seed. Jesus is saying that his life is almost like a seed, a single seed. His life is going to go into the ground and die. He's going to be crucified, 
dead and buried. He's going to fall into the ground. And then it says, and if it, fall, if it doesn't fall into the ground, it remains a single seed. But if it does fall into the ground, up comes loads of seeds. Jesus is saying, I'm going to fall into the ground. I'm going to give up my life to conquer sin and death so that you can rise up. So there can be lots and lots and lots of seeds Lots of people. This is the, the true revolution that something small, like that, that seems small and insignificant, like, 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 like a life, is going to go into the ground and it's going to die. And if you were thinking, how was God going to change the world? You wouldn't think about a little seed, would you? You wouldn't think about a little egg. You wouldn't think about something really small. You think about a revolution or something major, but Jesus is saying, no, my life. It's like a little seed. It's going to go into the ground and die. This is a quote as we get towards the end. It says this. Calvary reveals what it means to be God. It's saying this is what God is truly glorified. You're going to see what he's really, really about. You're going to see what he's real worth. Self-emptying love is the proper expression of divine status. The suffering of Jesus on the cross is not merely a human tragedy or merely unfortunate collateral damage suffered by God in the mission to rescue sinners. But it's the demonstration of who God is. God is the God who empties himself. God is the God who gives himself away. God is the God whose, whose life is poured out, who's, who's, who goes into the ground and dies, who, who hangs on the cross in incredible pain, taking the, the sin of the world, taking the, all the injustice, everything that's wrong with the world, he carries it in his body, takes it into the ground and dies. And that demonstrates who God is. It demonstrates that God is the God that gives himself away. God is the God who gives himself to you. You might think that you need transformation. You, may, you might need this or you need that. But ultimately, you need him. You need him. You need him to forgive you. You need him to love you. You need him to transform you. You need he, him to, get, to make your life different. And the sad thing is that the, the crowds didn't want this. The crowds reject Jesus. Isn't it terrible that on the, uh, the, on the, by, by the Friday morning, on the, pre, the day of preparation of Passover, it says, here is your king, Pilate says to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. No, we have no king but Caesar. And that's Incredible. They're saying, Jesus, you're our king. Jesus is the one who's going to come and save us. Jesus, you want to come and save us. Oh, you're not going to save us like I want. You're not going to do my agenda or my thing. Right, I'm not going to have you. I'm not going to have you. Have you ever talked to somebody, if you're talking to them about Jesus, and, and you say to them, you know, I, I, you talk to them about Jesus, and they'll say, I won't follow a Jesus who's, who's, who does that. Have you anyone had that? So, I won't follow a Jesus who tells me who I can sleep with. I won't follow Jesus who tells me what I need to do with my money. I won't follow Jesus who demands my life, my soul, my all, as that song says. I won't follow Jesus who does that. I won't follow, it's almost like, no, I'll have a Jesus who does this for me, but I won't have a Jesus who does what I really need. We do that all the time. The story of the Jewish nation is, that, or the story of the Bible is, that we won't have God as our king. Would you, you know, in the garden, there's this question, you know, oh, come on, take the, 
take the fruit. You can be God. You can be your own king. You can rule your own life. It's going to be amazing. Israel, like, we don't want God as our king. But what happens is humanity cannot rule over itself. So who rules? Sin rules. I'll say that again. We won't have God as our king. We want to rule ourselves. So who rules? Sin and death rules. We want, we want Jesus as our king. Well, no, we don't want him. We, no, we, no, we won't have him as our king. No, in the end, Caesar rules. If you will not have God as your king, as the king that you really need, not the king for your own convenience, but the king who's going to really meet and transform the life you need, then you won't have a king at all. You'll be saying, I'll just have Caesar. Let me quote this. Post-Christian culture, this is a book I read a few years ago, post-Christian culture attempts to retain the solace of faith, all the good things about following Jesus, while gutting or taking out of it its costs, its commitments, its restraints that the gospel places on the individual will. Post-Christianity instinctively yearns for the justice, the righteousness, the peace or the shalom of God's kingdom while defending the unquestioned reign of the individual will. We won't have Jesus if he wants to tell us what to do. I want a Jesus who's going to give me the revolution I want, but I'm not going to give a, have a Jesus who gives me what I really need. And you're probably all sitting here and thinking, I know all this. I know all this. But the fact is, each day, that is the choice. Am I going to have God as my king? You think, no, I, I can do it myself, thank you. But the reality is you will not if you make that choice. Sin and death will rule over you. Your life will be a mess. Your life will be a mess. I'm not going to give you examples because time's gone. But Jesus knows our true need. Jesus knows our true need. John says this, anyone who loves their life in this world will lose it. When anyone who loves their life less or hates their life will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. So this is the choice you've got to make. Imagine this little seed is your life. Or imagine it's my life. I can do this with it. I can say, this is my life. These are my things. This is my time, my stuff, my priorities, my needs. If you hold on to your life like that, ultimately, you're going to lose it. You're going to find there's nothing there. You're going to find that your life's empty. You're going to say, I'm going to chase my own agendas, my own time. I'm going to do the London thing. I'm going to do those things. And you hold tightly to your life. And Jesus says, it will come to nothing. It will come to nothing. Anyone who loves their life in this world will lose it. It's about priorities. But anyone who says, no, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to say, I deny myself. I let my, I let my life go. I let my life, as it were, go into the ground. I follow Jesus where he's gone. I go to the place where he's gone. I open up my hand and say, I'm going to let this life go. I'm going to let it go. I'm going to pour it into the ground. You're going to have eternal life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, two quotes and we're done. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German, uh, writing in the Second World War, says this. The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ sacrifice all must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is this dying of the old self 
You could add the old agenda, the old desires, the own things that you want from God that's for you, which result from the in Christ with Christ. It's the dying of the old self, which is the result of the encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we send our, uh, surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. When Christ calls us, he bids us come and die. Self-denial means knowing only Christ and forgetting oneself. And you think, that's not a very encouraging word, is it, Howard? You've come on Palm Sunday, you don't even know us, you know, I'd like you to give me a really uplifting word, and what you've said is you need to come and die. But that's the story of Holy Week, yeah? I mean, even just what you do with your Easter, and you're all here, and I love you for coming, thank you for coming, and I'm not slamming on those that aren't here. But you know, you can think Easter's a great holiday, isn't it? And it is a great holiday. Oh, man, I've worked hard. My wife's a teacher. Oh, you know, crawling to their land. All right, I'm, you know, Easter's a holiday. I'm just going to chill. I'm going to eat chocolate eggs. I'm just going to hang out. I'm going to have a nice dinner, whatever. But actually, that's not the journey of, of, of Holy Week, is it? The journey of Holy Week is you say, I follow you, Jesus. I follow you on Good Friday, and I say, I let go of my life. I let go of my life, and you say, it is all yours. It's all yours. And then you come on Easter Sunday... And you say, thank you that I've found my life. As it says in the hallway, I've even what, forgot what it says in the hallway now. What does it say? I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. But first, you've got to go, I'm going to go down with you. No, he's not going to just do your agenda and give you life. He's going to give you life to the full. Don, Dan White Jr. is a pastor in America. He said this. I, I, he put it on Twitter last week. And I thought, whoa. The paradox, that's like the bit. Oh, I can't understand it. It's like, oh. The paradox of Christianity is that self-fulfillment. Who wants self-fulfillment? Yeah? We're there, aren't we? I want my life to be full. I want life to the full. That's what this, the motto of this school says. I want life to the full. I want self-fulfillment. Comes through self-emptying love. For more information, visit our website at godfirst.org.uk.